I'm Steve from Maryland, a brash and belligerent rocket scientist who is permanently angered by everything, but mostly British people who overreact just because casualties happen to be a tiny, tiny, tiny side effect of my experiments. And I'm Al from New Zealand, a haunted, skeletal survivor of many nosedives and fields. But I would never cue jump in a pharmacy or try to play paper, rock, scissors with a cactus. This is the Hammerama experiment, sending our voices into space in the vain hope that they will eventually land as a coherent podcast episode. Our theme is The Wonderful House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reber Clark. And our film for discussion this month is a vital turning point for Hammer when they realized that frightening people can bring you fame, fortune, eventually podcasts dedicated to your production. It's 1955's The Quatermass Experiment, or in Brian Dunleavy's native land, The Creeping Unknown. You can't escape it. Maggie, look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of... The Creeping Unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a hole in the world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a question I know the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close... Brian Donlevy, he dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the creeping unknown. the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. Bernard Quatermus. And note the pronunciation, everyone. I have egg on my face. I have been <laughs> lambasting my poor American friends for mispronouncing Quatermass's name. Now, about 50% of the time in this film, they do say Quatermass, but they also say Quatermass. And I really like that. It's that uniquely British thing of shortening the second A in a word. For example, Tarzan becomes Tarzan. So 50% of the time, Bernard Quatermass is actually Bernard Quatermass. 
Okay, now I've got that off my chest, I'm going to start the synopsis again. Bernard Quatermass seems to be missing two scientists when his rocket ship crash lands in an English field. The lone survivor, Victor Caroon, is definitely not himself, and his wife Judith is definitely not an actress. When an altercation with an innocent cactus sends the rapidly mutating spaceman on a rampage across London, the true nature of a new threat facing polite, post-war Britain becomes clear. Yes, it's blustering, belligerent Brian Donlevy, on loan from the US and here to shout and bully everyone into submission. But has even the pugnacious prof met his match with a 20-foot mass of germinating space jelly? Who knows? Who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I have some interesting first thoughts about this film uh, now. It was... Oh. I'm looking forward to hearing them, Steve. Oh. <laughs> okay. For a second there, I thought I jumped the gun. I was like, oh, I thought well, I was Well, <laughs> you know what? You brash Americans can be like crashing your way into rooms and shouting at everybody. I'm, I'm actually a bit scared to say anything. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're across the world. I think you're pretty much safe. <laughs> we're doing the Quatermass series in an interesting way because we did the last one we did. first. And now we're going to the first one mm -hmm. second. And the second one will eventually be the third one because for obvious reasons. This makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. In our, in our own little world. So, Brian Dunleavy was a totally different Quatermass than the wonderfully portrayed version by Andrew mm. Keir, who just played it as a so well as the scientist um, trying to work out the different ways to solve the problem. Dunleavy comes <laughs> in, as you said, with this brash approach. And the way this movie goes, I'm really thinking of Dunleavy as, or Quatermass in this case, as being Frankenstein. <laughs> and Victor Caroon ends up being his mm -hmm. monster. And so we're basically, we're following the villain of the piece through the story who never learns his lesson by the time the end comes. Cause he's just like, we're just going to do it again. Cause well, I got rid of the monster and now I'm going to do more experiments and your government's paying for it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's almost like he's going to twirl a mustache. I mean, it's just, it's just an interesting portrayal. Mm. I'm just, I was not expecting him to be, in my opinion, the mm. villain doesn't care about what other people say, focuses only on what he's doing. Am I reading this wrong, Al? Is, is this my interpretation warped? I think uh, your interpretation is perfectly valid and flabbergasting is absolutely the right description for Brian Don Levy's performance. You know, he actually made me reluctant to watch this. And I try to flatter myself that I resist received wisdom whenever I can. But even so... Because so much is said about how everyone knows that Don Levy's performance was an abominable travesty of writer Nigel Neal's precious Quatermass character. And, you know, who wants to see that after we've seen Andrew Keir's brilliant performance in Quatermass in the Pit? Well, guess what? This might not be Nigel Neal's vision of the character, but to my complete surprise, I loved Brian Don Levy as Quatermass. 
<laughs> it was like it was it was like watching a slightly rabid dog attacking everyone else on screen. And I mean, how can that not be entertaining? There's a lot of pleasure to be had in watching this American bull crash his way through a British china shop. But having said that, I found even more delight in the fact that Jack Warner's terribly English and good-natured, reasonable and affable Lomax actually stopped Quatermass in his tracks simply by being the opposite to everything that Quatermass is. As I say, he was polite, he was reasonable, he was intelligent, and together these two very, very different people actually worked beautifully as a team when everything else had succumbed to Quatermass's rampage through this film. So for the characters of Quatermass and Lomax alone... I really thought this was a fantastic film and I enjoyed it far more than I thought I was going to. What I liked about Lomax's mm. character was also the comedy that was brought in from it. There was that moment of levity where the scene where one of his subordinates is bringing him something and you're first introduced to his character at, at mm -hmm. his office and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is probably something from the scene. This is something, you know, some kind of evidence or whatever. It ends up being an electric razor because <laughs> he wants to get shaven. <laughs> and I was just, because I was just like, wait a minute, it's an electric razor? What? <laughs> and, and then I didn't realize it was going to be later on, he's shaving exactly. at home and he gets yep. called away. So I was liking that it had some comedic elements yes. to it. And um, I really enjoyed him and Quatermass's interaction. And I'm, when, I, when I'm saying with Dunleavy, I'm not saying I, I don't like his performance. It just totally took mm. me by surprise. Mm. Though I do think he is the second tier Quatermass compared to mm. Andrew Keir, who to me is, is maybe it's because I saw him first. I don't know, but I love that portrayal. But there's still Quatermass 2 to be seen. So I could change my mind. I would agree that perhaps uh, Andrew Kerr's performance has more nuance. It certainly has more layers to it. And, you know, maybe this is just me adding things where they don't exist. But watching this version of Quatermass reminded me of how some people saw Ernest Rutherford, the New Zealand physicist who famously split the atom. He was apparently a big, booming, brash man who didn't really fit with most people's idea of what a scientist should be. But what he actually did was that he would originate an idea and then he would empower the scientists, the, the young people that he worked with, to actually carry it forward. And watching this version of Quatermass makes me think that perhaps he would be shouting at everyone, he would be formulating the original idea, and then he'd have a lot of younger scientists underneath him who would go scurrying away, probably in terror, to actually um, progress his concept and make it a reality. So yeah, that's how I'm sort of interpreting his version of Quatermass. But as I say, I'm probably adding layers where possibly there weren't any. Well, that's one thing we can say about this Quatermass. He doesn't scurry he, anywhere. He walks. Well, <laughs> sometimes walks briskly, uh, but he doesn't go quicker than a brisk walk that I remember seeing. He, he, he walks with purpose. I don't know. He didn't seem like a demand of action. You know, that seemed to be given more to moving around and inspecting the area seemed to be more of um, Dr. Briscoe's yes. 
um, performance. You know, David King Wood. He was the. It was almost like Doctor Who mm. in a sense, where the old with the original Doctor, but all the companions that are going and doing all the uh, the, the physical type things, and he's there to yes. Mounds up. I'm getting an old Doctor Who vibe, which I love. But, you know, it's just well, interesting. Well, infamously, uh, Nigel Neal was annoyed with lots of things. And one of the things he was annoyed with was Doctor Who because they clearly stole just about all of his ideas across a range of, of episodes. If you've ever seen the Tom Baker story, The Seeds of Doom, it borrows from the thing, but it's also it also owes a very large debt to this particular story. But also talking about Brian Don Levy's movement, Nigel Neal infamously described him as waddling which isn't very <laughs> kind but if you watch that very last scene again you can see where he's coming from so while we're talking about Quatermass and Lomax I'm going to go on to my favorite scene if that's okay with you I thought you were going to give your secondary faults then your tertiary faults which I think I we both have I think we have and even though you're a brash American you did let me get a word in edgeways so yeah that's good okay of course you do control the editing <laughs> yeah. so it could always be to you. <laughs> I have the power favorite scene well as I uh, suggested in my first thoughts it really had to involve Don Levy and Warner as Quatermass and Lomax now the particular scene that I'm talking about is when Lomax visits Quatermass to propose that they work together on the problem now this is the second encounter that these two characters have had their first encounter it went very decisively to Quatermass who after he stormed out of the room I think Lomax turns to his assistant and says well I think we've just been given the rocket so Lomax visits Quatermass and he wants to propose that they join forces and naturally Quatermass is resistant to this, but he also knows without wanting to admit it that he's losing control of the situation. And Lomax obviously needs his help as well. So when Quatermass brushes him off, Lomax says, Look sir, no one ever wins a cold war. One of us had better come over to the other side. You don't want to come over to mine? I'm not proud. I'll come over to yours. And he just delivers it so beautifully and without being confrontational, you see Quatermass finally given. He realizes that this man can be a valuable ally and from this point they begin to work together. But what really clinches the deal is when Lomax shows him those really creepy fingerprints which he's taken uh, from Victor, which is just one of many very uneasy scenes in this film, which might not be terrifying, but it does have um, a consistent feeling of dread that runs all the way through it. It's very powerful and very beautifully done. With Lomax, one of the things I loved about his character mm -hmm. was that he was pre-Columbo's mm. Columbo, where He's always acting a little bit like, I really don't understand. I, I, I forgot the term he exactly used, but he's like, oh man, I don't know mm -hmm. this science stuff. You know, always putting himself down. So that way the person is ingratiates them even more. So Quatermass is yes. going to tell them more, which is great detective work because it's, oh, I'm going to use all that information. The movie has that mystery quality. They're going to be able to solve the problem. What is causing this issue? 
which is great about science fiction mm. movies when you get that he's playing this detective so well. It's a little thing, but I, I could see Inspector Lomax in a murder yeah. mystery. Yeah doing that same thing and just and just getting people that, I mean, once they get overconfident, he can mm. just nail them. He's using those same little equator mass things. Oh, he's not a threat. I can bring him along with me. It's not a big deal. And that's, I think, where Jack Warner portrays that charm, that quality. Throwaway lines mm-hmm. that he said, but I'm like, this is like Peter Falk's yes. Columbo. I really like that comparison. He wants people to underestimate him. Because as we all know, when someone underestimates you, that's when you truly have the advantage. And there's several times through this film where he shows that despite the fact that he has a very affable exterior, that there's a core of steel in there and also a very, very quick mind. But as you say, he's quite happy just to conceal all of that just to get Quatermass on side. And yeah, they both work together, the actors and the characters, extremely well. It's always hard to say what the director, the script, and the actor, Mm. but I'm I'm giving credit to the director, our guest, Wonderful oh, yeah. job. And I'm, I'm giving credit to Jack mm-hmm. Warner for just portraying that. And Jack Warner was just about to go on to lasting fame in a series called Dixon of Dot Green, which I must confess I've never seen. I don't know if he was a policeman or a detective, but no doubt he used all of the qualities that we've just uh, described for that long-lasting and much-loved character. My favorite scenes, and the reason I say scenes, it's a lot of them involve... Richard Wordsworth mm. playing Victor Caroon and his body language and facial expressions to get across different emotion. A very, and also the special effects that were done to him, the makeup effects to show how he's different than normal. You know, when you first see him mm-hmm. in the, well, I shouldn't say the hospital, but when he was in the, the, the room at the lab yeah. when they were holding him there before they took him there, you can see this is a changed man. This is a man the gaunt face and stuff like that. And yes, it, it, it's very Frankenstein monster-like. It's very Karloff-like, um, what they're going with, with um, less of a budget and, and more, less pronounced makeup, but very effective. And just like Karloff, it's only as effective as the performer who's portraying it. Mm-hmm. So yes, his body was a great canvas, like Karloff's was, but also the way he's able to emote through this whatever is getting more and more control over him there are certain things he didn't want to have done like he never wanted to show his hand Mm. and um, when his hand was shown that's usually one tragic effect for the person making and draw the hand Mm. and you could just see at each time with the um, the guy that was trying to get him out of the hospital with the pharmacy and the little girl he was reluctant to have that pulled out eventually unseen to us that control gets lost by him and when the body count moves up, especially at the zoo. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because now he's lost that humanity or, or the brain function control and has become more alien in nature. But that's a lot of that's unseen. So I'm just speculating that's where it went. But again, with the Frankenstein monster motifs, it's spot on. Like it's, it's right there with the little girl scene with the doll. Mm. That's definitely going to bring back the Frankenstein, James Wales, 1931 classic yes. with the girl at the lake, that kind of thing. This one, thankfully, did not have the same tragic consequence. It was the doll that suffered the... It was tragic for the doll. <laughs> yeah. but, but Jane Asher played the little girl so mm, well, too. I mean, and, and, you know, and I thought it was just a fine scene, a very good scene. Mm. I think he only really said what, one thing early in the thing, like help, help them. Yeah. Meaning... 
and that was about it. So mm-hmm. it was virtually a wordless performance. And I feel that you need that. You need to care about Quatermass's monster, mm-hmm. what I'm going to call it, in order for this movie to work. And without that performance, this movie would not work. Mm. You're absolutely right. Um, my reserve favorite, obviously, I was going to be about Richard Wordsworth because, as you say, Steve, his performance was riveting. And although you mentioned makeup, I think his own features contributed a lot to his look. He was He's a very gaunt person. And I think um, it's on record somewhere that the, uh, the makeup people said that they needed actually to do very little. They just accentuated his, his, his natural features. The combination of Richard Wordsworth and Val Guest added real power to his scenes. And one that sticks in my mind is the scene where we're actually in a different room. Quatermass and Briscoe are arguing, but through this glass door, you can see Karun silently sit up in bed, climb out, and reach for a vase of flowers. Now, this might be Judith's best scene because she's silent, and she's sitting reading, and unaware of what's happening. And when Karun collapses and knocks the vase onto the ground and it smashes, you see her react as if she's genuinely shocked and didn't realize it was going to happen. And then she runs towards the two men and tells them what's happening. But the whole point is that the action is happening in another room. It's actually secondary to what what the camera is focusing on. But our attention is still drawn to the silent tableau happening in the background. And it's beautifully done in just one more scene that adds a real sense of realism and uneasiness to this, uh, to this pretty amazing film. And that, and that had me wondering because he, wanted to, he was drawn out of the bed to the flowers mm. in, the, in the vase. And then later he's drawn to the cactus. Yeah. And I was wondering like, is this alien looking for plant-like material, you know, to, to continue the metamorphosis mm-hmm. and, and so on? You know, it, it, and that's the one thing, the, I'm going to ding the movie a little bit, they don't really do the scientific babble to explain some of these things, which is fine and good. You know, for a 1950s movie, though, usually there's always the exposition dump. Yes. And this movie avoids that and doesn't really explain what was causing it because they just didn't know. And so part of me really likes that. You know, because it's and the other part of me is like, well, I wish, I wish they would explain. Maybe it's because, from what I've read, this was a longer um, production at one time, and they had to shrink it down to the movie, the size, you know, for the, the time frame and that. And so some things might have got left out. I've never seen the or heard the original. The original series, unfortunately, no longer exists in its entirety. The BBC once again have managed to lose or erase some episodes over the course of time. What you've just described, though, Steve, many people see that as a strength of this film. A lot of people, probably myself included, have used the word Lovecraftian when they talk about the nature of this horror. And what that essentially means, to me at least, is that the true nature of the threat is unknown and possibly unknowable. Its motivations are so alien, 
and so different to our way of thinking that we'll never truly understand. So we can try and piece things together, but we may never really know. But having said that, I'm just going to drop in a little bit of audio here. And it's actually Nigel Neal talking about the nature of the threat. And despite everything that I've said... He actually gives a pretty clear description here of how he envisaged this entity which uh, takes the three astronauts over. In my story, the threat was not here on Earth ready to blow up in our faces, but out there waiting for us, drifting through space. A sort of plankton of the ether, pure energy perhaps, without organic structure never approaching Earth any more than a deep-sea creature comes to Piccadilly Circus. But when the rocket goes there... And that, that audio was great, you know, that, to hear his explanation. What I find fascinating about this movie, though, is like I was saying, in the 50s movies, the 50s would always do the exposition dump. Mm. And this movie was more like a movie that would come out in the 60s, or especially the 70s. Yes, yes. Where they're, they're not going to explain it. Mm-hmm. And I think... So that's what was from me. I enjoy not knowing, yeah. but I was expecting to find out because of the era that the movie came out mm. in. That was the normal trope sure. and the explanation. And if I was watching a late 60s movie or 70s or later, uh, like John Carpenter's The Thing, you just don't really get an explanation about any of that stuff. You find out as they find out of what's going on and and you know for the, for the actions that you see in the movie. And I find that superior storytelling than an exposition dump. Sure. It was just threw me off for what I was expecting. You know, mid-50s, you're expecting a certain type of movie, and this one is definitely different than the norm. You're absolutely right, and it says a lot about the quality of Nigel Neal's writing. And possibly it says something about the transatlantic difference between how storytelling is approached, the British approach and the American approach. I mean, that's a horrible generalization to make, but you can see that there are distinct differences in storytelling style, and you know, maybe that's a, that's a contributing factor as well. It could very well be, and I, I, I'm, I guess I enjoy that. I suspect that the original serial, if we were to watch the whole thing now, and you can you can access what's what's left of it, we might find the storytelling a little rambling, um, which is fine. It's a product of its era and probably beautifully done. But I just love how this absolutely cuts off any unneeded material and you get a really really sharp finely honed powerful story in this adaptation and as i said before i'm just astonished at how good it is and and embarrassed that i was initially reluctant to have to watch it again i guess i'm kind of strained towards my final thoughts here so i may as well give them and they they would be who knew that Hammer Horror made a found footage horror film many, many decades before it became so fashionable. I mean, not only do we have this very eerie, silent footage, which is taken on board the rocket, where we can only guess at what we're actually seeing, and and it's creepy, and it's unnerving. It could have been comical, but but somehow it just makes you very, very aware of how much we don't know and how vast space is and, and how terrifying the, the unknown is. But not only that, 
but the reveal of the final Karoon creature is actually during a live television broadcast, that documentary filmed at Westminster Abbey. I mean, these are two very uh, unexpected ways of revealing key plot details in this film. And I don't know if it's ever been done like this before. But speaking of documentaries, and I'm sure you'll agree, Steve, I think you've alluded to this, many of these scenes have a sort of distinct newsreel kind of feeling, as if it's all happening live, uh, particularly the opening of the film where all the emergency services are arriving at the crash site and the police are trying to cordon the area. There's huge crowds of people. The camera, it's moving around as if it's trying to capture what's happening while it's happening rather than something that's being rehearsed. And this just adds a real authenticity in a kind of, you know, Orson Welles radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds kind of way. I think the black and white photography really enhances this as well. And I don't think post-war London has ever looked so stark and frightening. I mean, you've got really obvious uncleared bomb sites and the camera catches some really grim architecture that actually makes it look more like some Soviet bloc nation. But the other element that I didn't see in previous viewings of this is that the ending has a distinct King Kong vibe to it as well. We may not have the Empire State Building in London, but we do have Westminster Abbey. And to actually have our giant creature up in, up in the scaffold, unreachable and menacing, yeah, that, that gave me a distinct kind of uh, King Kong vibe, which I really enjoyed. This is a really, really startling film. It's anchored by Wordsworth's incredible, just about completely silent performance. As you've said, a proto-Frankenstein creature. And it's really easy, I think, to see how what we know as Hammer Horror actually germinated from this experiment. I agree with a lot of you just said. I'm not going to argue with any of those points. Um, no, going in this, I was not expecting it to be like the Quatermass being Dr. Frankenstein and, the, and, and a Frankenstein monster type yeah. thing, like I, like I alluded to earlier. So it, it, it totally took me by surprise that we were in that type of movie. So I, I, there was a lot of pleasant surprises with this. Sure. But I do want to say one thing you and I have not brought up. There was one thing that was definitely not a pleasant surprise. Mm -hmm. and, and you did allude to this person earlier, um, and that was... Judith Karun, as portrayed by Margia Dean. Yes. You and I were discussing this prior. Uh, to me, it sounded like her voice was mm -hmm. dubbed. Because um, when, I, when I first heard that, I was like, oh my God, it's dubbed, and it's dubbed poorly. Yeah. And which makes me wonder, how bad could her acting be where they thought this dubbing was improving it? The emotion, the, the words, the verbiage didn't, oh, it, it just didn't flow. Mm. And I was so glad when her character left the movie yes. and was gone. And because that was pulling me out of the movie every time she spoke. So I just wanted to let listeners know there is one thing that I think you and I can both agree on. The performance done by her was 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 definitely the low point in the movie. Everybody else was doing a great job. Solid to great, but her. <laughs> it's a real shame. I mean, I'm not going to dwell on it because you and I try to be kind wherever we can be when we're talking about these films. It's a bad performance. There are no two ways about it. And it's a testimony to the rest of the film, I think, that it just manages to maintain a high standard despite that 
really bad note. And it was possibly a lesson that Hammer learned. And going forward, I just can't think of a single instance where there's a reasonably important character who is just so inappropriate and out of place compared to compared to everybody else. One performance I definitely want to highlight because I, I, I enjoyed it. She was only in there for one scene. But oh, what a scene it was <laughs> of, of, of some comic relief. Oh, yes. Rosemary... Rosie Elizabeth Wrigley, the amazing Fora Heard, her performance in there as the homeless person who comes in <laughs> having seen it and the way the police officers are reacting to her, like mm-hmm. here she comes again, mm-hmm. already knowing her name, yep. all of her name and rated it and how she takes her time getting to the story. And then when she finds out it's real, she's like, wait a minute, this is real? I've lost my legs. And then she falls over. I mean, it was just, it puts a smile on your face, but it also adds a key element to the movie. Yes. So it's it's a comedic moment that actually ch- leads them to where the creature is. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they can, or was. And I just thought her performance added some levity, added some nuance. I loved it. And um, I'm glad that was there in that. So I want to definitely give her a shout out. And also, not utilized a lot, but I couldn't believe how youthful he looked. Lionel Jeffries Mm. as Mr. Blake. When I Mm. saw him, I was like, no, (laughs) that can't be, can it? He's so young. And 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 so I had to look it up. I was like, dang, damn it, it is Lionel Jeffries. And uh, as Mr. Blake, I was happy with that too. You know, it was just nice to see him in the movie. He was basically the bureaucrat type, you know, so I wanted to give them both shout outs that I really, Rosemary, Rosie was just, oh, oh, that character was just wonderful. I'm so pleased you enjoyed her and her gin goblins. There's a good film, Quasimass and the gin goblins, because she's playing a sort of archetype of British theatre, I, I suppose. She's a sort of slightly grotesque older woman who nobody really takes seriously while giving this amazing comedy turn but also advances the plot and in terms of Lionel Jeffries has he ever had any hair I don't know I mean I've only known him I just never knew he was that young (laughs) to finish off my final thoughts I I really enjoyed this movie I enjoyed Quatermass in the Pit as I think I already alluded to much more Mm. Um, it's it's one of my favorite of all the Hammer movies we've seen so far as people know from our list it's a nice solid science fiction mystery monster movie. If I would have saw it in the 50s, I would have been wondering, what am I seeing mm. in America? Because this was totally would have um, gobsmacked me, you know, because you're, you're not getting all the exposition. You're getting all this other story. And I, could you imagine seeing this in the theater mm. when it first came out, being so different and unique in America, not knowing anything about Quatermass? Yeah, yeah. And this did bring in new stuff because Hammer went in a totally new direction mm-hmm. because of this film. And obviously, podcasts like ourselves are in existence because of the direction that Hammer went into due to this film being the one of the things that sent them that way. Yeah. Right. Well, we've done Quatermass, the Quatermass experiment. And speaking of what I said about our, our top movies, we have feedback from... The Classic Cars Club podcast co-host, Jeff Owens, he's going to give not his top 10, but his top six. Hey, Stephen Alistair, this is Jeff Owens in the smoggy, smoky skies of Minneapolis today. Wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed your last episode. I do have a nit to pick, though. I, I was quite perplexed 
and was very confused until I realized you were probably doing your top ten list backwards. Otherwise, how can you explain that Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde was so close to the top? I'm going to give you my top, I think, seven list for Hammer Films. And uh, granted, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is not at the top, but it is in the top five. Number, oh, and this is six instead of seven. Number six, Quatermass in the Pit. Number five, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Number four, Curse of Frankenstein, number three, Dracula, number two, The Mummy, and my number one film for this list, at least, because you have yet to cover my current favorite Hammer film, is Twins of Evil. Thanks for everything you do. I enjoy your podcast. It just doesn't come out often enough, but I look forward to the next one. Take care. What did you think? Oh, Al? fantastic! It's always great to hear from 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 Jeff, and um, thank you, Jeff, for sending that in. That's absolutely fascinating. This is exactly what Steve and I were hoping for. I mean, we give our opinions, but we are genuinely interested to hear everyone else's, and that really was intriguing. Thank, thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah, Twins of Evil number one, and I'm curious. I'm curious what movie we haven't covered yet would be his number one. Mm. I, I have, I have a, a couple ideas which might be his number one. I think it's probably going to be a movie in the seven. Knowing Jeff as we do, we might be able to take an educated guess. Yeah. Yes, I think so. But I know there's one thing listeners are probably wondering right now: mm-hmm. what movie will we be doing next? Mm. So I'm going to roll the die. And it's just before I roll the die, just to let listeners know, I'll read the first three and I'll let Alistair give the next three. Mm -hmm. If I roll a one, we do another one of the Dracula movies. A two, Frankenstein. Three, The Mummy. Four, science fiction. Five, prehistoric. And number six, the experimental 1970s. Yes, and the roll is a one. Oh. We're going back to the count. We are picking up the count again. And the next film we're going to be doing, Steve, is Taste the Blood of Dracula. That sounds disgusting, the Taste the Blood of Dracula, but it's but riveting at the same time. <laughs> uh, yes, it's not, it's not something that's making me lick my lips, but... It is, it is a great film. Um, it actually transplants the Count, or at least what's left of him after the last film, to London. We get some wonderful performances, and we get Ralph Bates. I'm looking forward to it. Mm, me I'm too. I'm looking forward to it. And as always, listeners, send us feedback like Jeff Owens. You can send us an audio feedback, or you can send us written feedback to diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook site. We're always happy to hear from everybody. We want to hear your thoughts about this movie, other movies that we've done. Give us, Let us know. Yes, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have discussing it. What an incredible film. And it's just amazing to think of what it actually led to. So please join us for a tasty return to the adventures of Count Dracula. Taste the blood of Dracula. See you next time.
Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.